Good morning, everyone. It is good to see all of you here. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there, and happy first day of summer to all of us. Uh, we hope that will be a great summer season here for us in New England, but above all, uh, a season of spiritual fruitfulness for each and every one of us in Christ. This morning, it is once again my privilege to return here to the pulpit and share the Word of God with you as we continue our message series on the subject of thinking biblically. As you can see highlighted, our last topic on this subject on our list is the subject of racism. And more specifically, as we began last week, we have been thinking biblically about race, racism, and reparations. Last week we began speaking about race and we saw that according to God in the Bible there is simply one race and that is the human race. And we also saw about racism in the world how those who do not believe in God and those who do not believe in the word of the Lord they have to rely on what science tells them and even science denies racism or racism denies science. We have seen that there is absolutely no scientific justification for racism. This morning we will conclude our message speaking about racism in the church and reparations, the issue of reparations. At this time, though, if you are able, would you please stand for us to read the Word of God together as we will read in the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Colossians in chapter 3. I will read the first slide. I will ask you to read the final verses with me. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, the Bible says, Put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, who created the new self. A renewal in which there is no distinction. Notice there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Let us read these verses together. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of your word, and we ask you, Lord, that your grace would be upon our lives for us to meditate and assimilate all that your word has for us, that your spirit would minister to us through the power of your everlasting scriptures. Bless us now, Lord, for the conclusion of this message, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Today, as we mentioned, we are thinking biblically about racism in the church. We are thinking biblically about the racist church. If there is such a thing as an oxymoron, that should be it. It is impossible for us to reconcile racism with church. The two terms are diametrically, are diametrically opposed. How can we ever reconcile racism with church? Knowing the definition of racism as we saw last week, 
Racism is prejudice, a preconceived idea of discrimination against a person or people on the basis of their skin color or ethnicity, according to the belief that each race possesses abilities specific to that skin color or ethnicity, and those abilities distinguish that race as superior or inferior to another race. Racism demands a person to believe that the other is inferior on the basis of the color of their skin. Racism demands that I feel superior to others because they have a different ethnicity, a different nationality, or a different skin color than mine. However, at the same time that racism demands that I feel superior and make others inferior to me, if I call myself a Christian, I have to go, I have to abide by what the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, where the Bible says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Consider others superior to yourselves. You cannot reconcile both. You must choose. You can be a Christian or you can be a racist, but you cannot be both. It is clear, according to we see, unfortunately, that as shocking as it may sound and unfathomable as it may sound, there does in fact exist racism in some local churches. I remember many, many years ago, my wife and I attended a conference, a church conference in San Diego, California. And once we got to the church venue, we were looking for some seats on the pews before the conference began. And as soon as we found a space, there were four ladies who happened to be black ladies who were sitting right next to us. The first lady who was closest to us, she looked at me and she looked at my wife being white. And she immediately got up and with a loud voice, she motioned with her hand for the other ladies to get up with her. And she said, let us get out of here and find another place where we can sit next to a good black man. I never forgot that. I have faced racism in the world, but I had never ever faced racism inside a church. How can it be? Unfortunately, there are some honest and decent people who may not even realize how the sin of racism is manifested in their lives. And the Bible even gives us an example. In John chapter 1, verse 45 and 46, the Bible says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He was an honest and good man. In fact, if you read the following verse, verse 47, Jesus himself says that he was a good Jewish man in whom there was no deceit. However, that did not save him from prejudice in his mind against those of a different ethnicity or those of a different city, those living in Nazareth. And of course, by the grace of God, Nathaniel was chosen by Christ to become one of the 12 apostles. We see him as Bartholomew, that's his name, Bartholomew, in the list of the apostles in the Gospels. Christ transformed him and set him free from any racist ideas. Racism violates the law of love. 
as Jesus tells us in his word, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, the Lord says, Jesus answered, the foremost commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second greatest commandment is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus says that I must love my neighbor as myself. If I truly love God, then I will love those whom he created and bear his image. Remember we saw last week that God created us all in his image with a spiritual capacity so that we could commune and have fellowship with him. That places us above all the other creatures is a privilege that God gave to us as human beings when he created the one and only human race. We are made in the image of God. And so, if I truly love God, I will love all those whom he created and bear his image. If I don't, I am violating God's commandment. I am sinning. I am violating the commandment of Christ that I must love everyone, love my neighbor as myself. The Bible tells us in James chapter 2, verse 89, If, however, if you are indeed fulfilling the royal law as Jesus spoke, according to the scripture, and that is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, if you are doing that, then you are doing well. However, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. There is no other way to put it. Racism shows favoritism, shows partiality to those of a different color or different ethnicity. It means that I am being partial, I am favoring, or I am being prejudiced against those of a different skin color than mine. More pointedly, the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It is clear that if I entertain racist hatred in my heart toward anyone else, I cannot possibly truthfully say that I love God. The Bible says that I am a liar. I am a liar not in the sense that I'm lying to you, portraying that I am a Christian, when in reality, when in reality I am just a hypocrite. No, the Bible says that I am a liar because I'm lying to myself thinking that I am in good standing before God when I am not. I am deceiving myself, thinking that I can be a Christian and a racist at the same time. It just doesn't work. It's an incompatible combination. Someone may say, how about black churches, preacher? Isn't that a double standard? If there should be no racism in, in the church and we accept black churches, Shouldn't we also accept white churches? Why the double standard? Well, first we must understand how black churches came to be. This is a photo of the first African Baptist church. It is the site of the first black church in America located in Savannah, Georgia. It was founded in 1773, the very first black, so-called black church. Of course, the original site the original facility of the church was not as fancy as what you see today. They were, it was just, it was much more modest than what you see today if you were to go to Savannah, Georgia to visit this first ever black church in America. In fact, 
even though it, it looks much more modern than the original facility, today, if you go to this church and you go to the balcony, you can still sit in the same original pews that the slaves built in the 18th century. This church was founded by a slave who received a license to preach to other slaves on their plantations in 1773. Most black churches were founded in the 1800s by former slaves. And they were founded because blacks were not allowed to congregate with whites. Segregationist attitudes existed from whites toward blacks even after slavery was ended, especially in the South. And it is with sadness in my heart that I must say that I have heard that even today there is still segregationist attitudes in the South and elsewhere. Blacks were not allowed to assemble with whites. In fact, most slave owners and masters, even those who were presumably Christians, they did not want the slaves to learn how to read, as history tells us. They did not want slaves to learn how to read, much less to read the Bible. Because history records that they said they feared that the words of Jesus would influence the Negroes with ideas of equality. Yes, black churches were founded. Yes, black churches were formed. But simply because blacks had no other option. They could not go to, other, to any other place. Today, though, there should be absolutely no justification for a black-only church. And there should be absolutely no justification for a white-only church. A black person should feel welcome going to a church attended predominantly by white people. As well as a white person should feel welcome going to a church where predominantly the members are black. And why not? In heaven, there will not be a white church or a black church. When the Lord welcomes us to heaven, we are not going to see a group of angels saying, door number one for those who are white, door number two for those who are black. It's just not going to happen that way. If I know my Bible, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 21 in verse 2, that there is only one bride adorned for Jesus Christ our husband. One bride. There is absolutely no justification for racism in the church. Someone may say, well, I don't think that other races are my neighbors. First of all, as we saw last week, racism is based on this flawed assumption. Relating race to skin color is a social construct. It does not exist in reality. There is only one race, and that is the human race. But to answer the question as to who is our neighbor, according to the words of Christ, as I believe you have read in Luke chapter 10, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, who is our neighbor? Our neighbor is anyone in need. Wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed. Also, a Levite saw him and passed by. But a Samaritan, when he saw him, he felt compassion. 
and came to him and bandaged up his wounds and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return I will repay you. Jesus asked, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Who is your neighbor? Jesus says, Anyone and everyone in need, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of their ethnicity. Love for all is mandatory according to what Jesus tells us in Matthew in chapter 5. The Bible says, you have heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There is absolutely never, there is never any justification for racism in the church. Jesus tells us that we must love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus tells us that we must love all, including those who openly profess and openly declare to be our enemies. The Bible not only is telling us that we must love them, but that we must also pray for our enemies. Why? Because it says right there, so that... Love your enemies so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, what proves that you are a child of God is the love that you have, not simply for those of the same color of your skin, but for every single person on this planet. Even those who declare themselves to be your enemy. And I want you to see what the Lord says in verse 48. Do not forget those words. As the Lord says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The New Testament removes all category distinctions because all human beings are equal before God. As we read in Colossians in chapter 3, where we read that before the Lord there is no distinction, likewise the Apostle Paul repeats in Romans in chapter 3, saying that in Christ there is no distinction. He says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. In Galatians chapter 3, we are told that the Christian ideal does not look at our differences. The verse says, beginning verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all of you have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are all Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. There is no distinction. If we are in Christ, everyone has the same standing in the kingdom of God. Notice that the Apostle Paul points to Abraham, saying that we are Abraham's descendants in our faith. And Abraham was a Jewish man. Notice that he says first, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Because the Jewish, 
the Jewish-Gentile controversy occupied as much place in human debates as today you would say that racism occupies in the debates between whites and blacks. But by mentioning Abraham, the Apostle Paul was saying in the same way that before the eyes of God, there is no distinction between Jewish and Gentile because that distinction means nothing in the kingdom of God. Likewise, for each and every one of us as believers in Christ, our different appearance should not make any difference before our eyes for we are all the same in the eyes of Christ once we have been redeemed by his blood, once we have been saved, there is absolutely no difference between us, among us, for the kingdom of God. The Bible tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, God told the prophet that man looks at the appearance, at the external appearance, but the Lord, he said what? The Lord, he sees the heart. We are not called by God to be Christians to look at our external differences. Thinking biblically about racism, it is impossible for us to deny that God has the same moral standards for both the world and the church. Remember what we read in Matthew chapter 5 verse 48, where Jesus said that we must be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, God does not lower the bar of His holy standard, keeping the moral standards just for those who are Christians and lowering for those who are unbelievers. No, we are all going to be judged by God according to His highest standard, and that standard is perfection. Without Christ, the only way that you can be saved is by being perfect. And let me tell you something that perhaps you do not know. Nobody's perfect. But that is the highest moral standard that God establishes for each and every one of us. That if we want to be saved, we must be perfect as God is perfect. And therefore, none of us can achieve such level of perfection. We must rely on the sacrifice that Jesus Christ paid for us at Calvary's cross. And it is according to his imputed justice, righteousness toward us, as he paid the price for our sins at Calvary's cross, that we can say that we have achieved the level of perfection. Not because of us, but in spite of us, we have received justification. We have received righteousness through the salvation that we have in Christ. Everyone, despite the color of their skin, everyone, despite of their ethnicity, those of us who repent of our sins and receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are part of the church, we are part of the body of Christ. God has the same moral standards for both the world and the church. In fact, we can say the high ideals and moral standards that the church observes should also be present in the world. And someone may say, well, preacher, if that is the case, if God holds the entire mankind accountable according to his high standards, if God holds all mankind accountable for their past sins, and God will judge all mankind according to his high level of morality and standards, according to his perfection, shouldn't we also hold our fellow men accountable to their past sins? Isn't this the perfect justification for reparations to be paid to descendants of slaves? How are we to think biblically about reparations? 
Yesterday, you probably heard about reparations as it came back as a subject to be on the news, especially yesterday being June 19th, or as it is called, Juneteenth, which has now been recognized as a federal holiday. It is the oldest celebration in America about the ending of slavery. 156 years ago yesterday, G Union Army General Gordon Granger, he landed at Galveston, Texas, to proclaim the news that the Civil War had ended, and therefore, he proclaimed to all the slaves that they were free. There is obviously a very important message here that if we were to digress, we could speak about Christ preaching and proclaiming freedom to those who were captive in sin. But the reality it is that when Juneteenth or June 19th is celebrated and accepted as a federal holiday, many discussions were talked about and referred to, we probably heard yesterday about reparations. What can we do about making right, about making things right with those who are descendants of African-American slaves? Have you ever seen this man? Do you recognize who he is? He is United States Senator Cory Booker. He is the junior Democrat senator from the state of New Jersey, who while he was a presidential candidate, in April of 2019, he introduced a Senate bill to look, to study about the possibility of paying reparations to descendants of slaves. Fairly recently, just two months ago in April, the House of Representatives also introduced and passed a companion bill so that Congress now has the green light to formally form a committee to study the feasibility of paying reparations to those who are descendants of slaves. And so, how are we to think biblically about this subject? Is God for or against it? First, let us define exactly what reparations are. Reparations are payments made to an injured or wronged individual by the individual responsible for the injury or the wrong. Reparations are payments made to an injured or wronged individual by the individual responsible for the injury or the wrong. It is important for us to understand, it is important for us to realize that if we are to think biblically about reparations, we must go to the Bible to see what God says. And someone may say, well, preacher, you're going to have a tall order because the Bible doesn't speak about reparations. Well, I beg to differ. On the contrary, the Bible speaks about reparations and God approves reparations. God endorses reparations. We, you are not going to find the word reparation in your English Bible, but the concept of reparation is replete within the, the Bible, as we are going to see. Let us examine specifically the guidelines that God gives us for the payment of reparations. First and foremost, we must understand that reparations being payments for injury or wrong done to a person, in the eyes of God, biblically speaking, 
an injury or a wrong done to another person, to a God image bearer, to another human being, is first and foremost done against God. The Bible tells us in Numbers in chapter 5, when a man or a woman commits any of the sins of mankind acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess his sins which he has committed, and he shall make restitution, which is the biblical word for reparation. But if the man has no relative to whom reparation or restitution may be made for the wrong, then restitution which is made for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest, besides the ram of atonement by which atonement is made for him. The offender caused an injury or caused the wrong to another human being. But first and foremost, he needed to recognize that he was sinning before God, before the Creator. Notice that no matter what the injury was, no matter what the wrong was against another person, God considered that to be a sin against him. Sins of mankind acting unfaithfully against the Lord. And what proves that is that the person, even before he or she needed to pay reparations to the offended party, the Bible says that the person first and foremost who needed to present a sin offering, the ram of atonement, making clear that first and foremost it was an offense against God. Now the Bible does speak about reparations for wrongs and injuries from the offender to the person who was offended. As we read in Numbers in chapter 5, the Bible says, when a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind and that person is guilty, then he shall make restitution in full for his wrong and add to it one-fifth. The Bible is clear that when I caused you injury to your body, when I caused you wrong, when I caused damage to your property, let's say that for ease of calculation that the damage I caused to you is in the amount of $100. The Bible says that I will have to pay you in full. I will have to pay you reparations in full. I have to give you $100 plus one-fifth. That is 20%. So if the damage I caused to you was in the amount of $100, I'll have to give you back, according to the Word of God, you must receive from me $120. We see that even in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 19, in the testimony of Zacchaeus. The Bible says, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back Four times as much. Zacchaeus was saying, half of what I own, I will give away. And not only that, Zacchaeus, he was revealing a true repentant heart going above and beyond what the law of Moses was imposing on him. Because according to the law of Moses, in our simple example, if he owed someone $100, Zacchaeus would have to pay just $120. But he was saying, I will not give you just $100. I will not give you just $120. I will give you $400. To each and every person that I have defrauded, I will give four times as much. It is important for us to understand that reparations vary depending upon the exact nature of the wrong of the injury. It was not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. Reparations are approved and endorsed by God according to the guidelines set by the Lord. In Exodus chapter 22, the Bible says, If a man steals an ox 
or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and he shall pay four sheep for the sheep. There were some very meticulous and detailed parameters for reparations to be paid according to the word of God. If I had stolen your ox, now for me to make you repaired, restored, I would have, you, I would have to give you five oxen in exchange or give you the equivalent of five oxen in money. If what I took from you was simply a sheep, then it wouldn't be just five sheep, it would be just four. God had the specific requisites for the reparations to be paid. Now notice this. Reparations are paid only for specific wrong or injury, not general injury or wrong. As I said, it was not a one-size-fits-all. But the Bible says in Exodus chapter 22, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep, he shall surely make reparation. He shall surely make restitution. If what he stole is actually found alive in his possession, whether an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. What does that mean? If I stole your ox that was valued at $100 and I sold it, it cannot be recovered, then I must give you five oxen back or I must give you $500. But if some way, somehow, the ox that I stole from you is still found, I have to give you that ox back and I will not give you anything further, but I have to give you $100. I'll have to give you double, which is the same value that I was expecting to gain by robbing, by stealing that ox from you. It is the same exact amount that now I'm going to lose. If the animal could not be found, five times more, four times for a sheep. If the animal could be found, then it's just double because I can recover you what you have lost temporarily. Very specific guidelines. Reparations should be paid based on the value of the specific injury or wrong done. He shall make restitution in full for his wrong and add to it one-fifth. And we just read in Exodus 22, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. When God says in the Bible about paying restitution in full, this would mean today in our courts, in lawsuits and in legal papers, restitution in full is the equivalent of compensatory damages. You have to make the offended party whole. However, what God added, the 20% or the five oxen instead of just one, is what the courts today would call compensation for pain and suffering. So you would have to make the person whole, compensatory damages, but also include pain and suffering for what you have caused to that other person as a victim. Reparations, though, are not paid when it is due to circumstances beyond someone's control. We see that in Exodus chapter 22 as well. The Bible says, if a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep for him, and he dies, or is hurt, or is driven away while no one is looking, he shall not pay reparation. He shall not make restitution. If it is all torn to pieces, let him bring it as evidence. But he shall not make restitution for what has been torn to pieces. This is what in legal terms we will call an act of God. In insurance policies and in 
courts and in lawsuits. This is what was beyond the person's control. If you had no control over what happened, then today in modern language this would be an act of God. And therefore you would not be responsible for paying any reparation. We see that confirmed in Exodus chapter 22 where the Bible says, If a fire breaks out and spreads to thorn bushes so that stacked grain or the standing grain or the field itself is consumed, he who started the fire shall surely make restitution. If I am responsible for the arson, then I shall be responsible to pay reparations. But if I didn't start the fire, like Billy Joel would say, then I will not pay reparations. I will not pay anything because I am not responsible for it. Notice this. Reparations are not the responsibility of anyone else other than the specific person responsible for the wrong or the injury done. In Ezekiel in chapter 18, we, we read this. He has a son who has observed all his father's sins. And observing, he, the son, does not do like his father. He does not oppress anyone. He will not die. The son will not die for his father's iniquity. He will surely live. As for his father, he will die for his iniquity. Notice someone as close as a descendant to someone who is an offender as a son is. God did not hold the son responsible for the acts of the father. Notice that the Bible says he has observed what the father did, but he does not do likewise. God did not hold the son responsible, much less those who would be a distant blood-related descendant of the person who committed the offense. The Bible says that reparations are not the responsibility of anyone else other than the person who committed the injury or the wrong. It says if he did not oppress anyone, then he will not die. He doesn't have to pay anything. The father, however, as the offender, yes, he will die. According to the law of God, yes, God would hold that person responsible. Reparations are paid by the specific person responsible for the wrong or the injury. When a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess his sins which he has committed, and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong. Only the person who committed the injury or the wrong, only that person is held accountable, according to the word of God, to pay reparations. And someone may say, but preacher, that's not fair. Perhaps you are misinterpreting God's word. You are talking about all these others, other injuries and wrongs. But you're not talking about the brutality and savagery of slavery. How about reparations for slavery? Does the Bible talk about that? If God indeed holds all mankind to his high moral standards... Shouldn't we also, at least specifically for the brutality of slavery, hold men accountable no matter how many generations have passed? The Bible does allude to reparations for slavery. That is true. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 15, If your kinsman is sold to you, then he shall serve you, but in the seventh year, you shall set him free. When you set him free, you shall not send, him in, send 
him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your wine vat. You shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. It is true that biblical slavery was not the same slavery as we saw in the United States until 1863 when Abraham Lincoln ended slavery, legal slavery in this country. Biblical slavery refers to when someone could not pay off his debt. And it is called indentured servitude. So that person would, became, would become a slave to the person to whom he could not pay his debt. He didn't have the means to pay, therefore he would become a slave to that person. That was indentured servitude. And that is what the Bible speaks of here. In fact, God mandated that those masters, those who became slave owners because someone came to live with them to work off their debts, God commanded the masters and the owners that they should treat their slaves so well that even at the end of that period on the person, when the person had already worked off their debt and had paid everything, there were times when the person who had become a slave did not want to leave the house. The person wanted to remain because he had been treated so well. The Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 21, verse 5 and 6, But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. And he shall serve him permanently. If I as a slave would voluntarily at the end of my paying the debt. I wanted to stay with you. I do not want to leave you master. Then the master would present me before God in a sense saying. God I know that at the end of his paying his death. You say in your word that I should set him free. But he's saying no. So I present him to you first. And then. It is interesting as the Bible says, he would present him to God and then he would present him to the doorpost. And with an ancient knoll, as you see there, he would perforate the earlobe of the person saying, I do not want to leave you. And that would happen, as you see in that verse 5 in Exodus chapter 21, when the Bible says, if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, that would happen not only because the slave owner or master was treating the person so well that he wanted to stay, but also in times when the person who had become a slave, he was single when he came to live with the master. If the slave was a married person with a wife and children, they would have to go with them they would have to go with him to the master's house and stay with him there. Once he had paid off the debt, then he could bring his wife. He could take his wife and his children with him. But in the case of those who were single, the masters, in an attempt to care for the slave so well, they would give the slave a wife. And what would happen is that the slave 
while working off his debt and working as a slave, he would marry and have children with the wife that the master had given to him. What would happen is at the end of that period of slavery, the man who had joined the master when he was single, the master had the right to claim the wife and the children. You can go, but she and the children stay with me. That was also another reason why many slaves were single and got, had gotten married by the, by the woman that the master presented to them. They wanted to stay there, and that's why they would say, I not only love my master because he treats me well, but now I have come to also love my wife and my children whom I had with her. So I want to stay here, and therefore, here's my earlobe. I will be your slave forever. If your kinsman is so to you, then he shall serve you, but in the seventh year you shall, you shall set him free. But notice this. God said, when you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. Even though that slave was in the house of the master working off his debt, which was just and fair, he needed to pay off his debt. He could not simply dec declare bankruptcy or say, oh, I have someone who signed collaterally, go after them. No, you had to pay your own debt. But at that moment, God says that that slave was also entitled to receive compensation. And what was the compensation? You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your wine vat. And you shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. As the Lord would bless the master according to the work of that slave, the Bible says that God commended the master to say, you shall give to your slave in proportion to what his work has brought to you. If I as God have blessed you according to the work, through the work of this slave, you shall give him proportionally. But I want you to notice this. The compensation that the slave would receive would be just for him. Not for the wife, not for the children, not for the grandson, not for a descendant down the line. The compensation commended by God was just for the slave himself. And notice that who was the one commended and mandated by God to pay that compensation? It was just the person who had the slave. It was just the owner or the master and no one else. Reparations are not the responsibility of anyone else other than the specific person responsible for the wrong or the injury done. Ezekiel 18 says, Yet you say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? You see, even in Israel, they could not accept the fact that God had said, the father will bear his own iniquity, but not the son. And they said, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. The bottom line here is that the weakness, wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself and not on anyone else. Folks, it is clear that reparations were paid for a specific wrong 
an injury done to a specific person. We cannot go anywhere else with that but to accept what the Lord says. When a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind, he shall make restitution in full for his wrong and add to it one-fifth of it. And give to him whom he has wronged. And if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to the Lord. What that means is this. If the offended party, if the slave, so to speak, was already dead, the offender, the master, or the slave owner would have to pay reparation to the living relative. But a living relative, relative who was living at the time of the injury or the wrong or the damage or the harm, not someone down the line. Reparations are paid on an individual basis. Yes, God endorses and approves payments of reparations, but only by the person who was guilty of the crime. And only those who suffered the harm were entitled to receive reparations. If they were dead, their relatives who were alive at the time of the injury, not anyone else. God approves of reparations, but not as a class action suit, not as a group lawsuit, not as something that must go down payments for generations. It is very specific, and it is certainly not applicable to the discussions of reparations because of slavery today. Leviticus chapter 6 says, When a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or security entrusted to him or through robbery, or if he has extorted from his companion or has found what was lost and lied about it and sworn falsely so that he sins in regard to any of the things a man may do, then it shall be when he sins and becomes guilty that he shall restore. He must pay reparation for what he took by robbery or what he got by extortion or the deposit which was entrusted to him or the lost thing which he found or anything about which he swore falsely. He shall make restitution for it in full and add to it one-fifth more. And he shall give it to the, one, to the one to whom it belongs. I could not be clearer about it. Let us not even try to justify the argument that reparations are viable for descendants, for African-American descendants of slaves today. I say this with no prejudice. I say this with no discrimination as a so-called black person myself. But the argument for the payment of reparations, if we are to think biblically about it, simply cannot be supported. And someone may say, preacher, you have highly disappointed me. This is discouraging. I thought you said at the beginning that reparations were approved and endorsed by God. Yes, and I gave you the, all the meticulous and details that must be followed if reparations were to be paid. And you might say, where's the justice? Where's the justice? And I ask you, where's the justice for women who are raped and their offenders are never caught? Where's the justice? For children who are abused and their abusers are never caught. 
Where's the justice for babies who are murdered in the womb and the laws of the land protect those who practice such practice? Where's the justice for those who have been violated within their own government by corrupt government leaders? Where's the justice for those who have suffered in their lives according to things that never come out to the light and they will never be brought to justice by what they are causing those little ones? Where's the justice? Where's the justice? I'll tell you where it is. In Acts chapter 17 verse 30, the Bible says, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Do you want to know where is the justice? The justice is in the Lord's hands. The question is not where is the justice? Don't you worry about the sins committed by others. Because the day of the Lord is coming when every single human being will stand before the judgment of God. And each and every one of us will be held accountable for our own deeds, for our own works. The question that you must ask, it is not where is the justice? The question is this, are you ready to stand before your judge? That is the question. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessings upon our lives to come to know your word as we want to live, Father, as we want to guide our steps, as we pray that your Holy Spirit would be the compass for our lives. We want to do what is your will for us to do. We want to abide by the eternal guidance of your wisdom, of your knowledge from your scriptures. And I pray, Father, that each and every one of us here would humble ourselves and indeed recognize that we all depend on you, that we must humble ourselves before you, for you are the supreme and great judge. May each and every one of us be simply concerned with our own spiritual lives before you, and may each and every one of us also have a clear and clean conscience knowing that by your grace we are ready for that moment when we will appear before the judge, when we will appear before you. May your grace, may your blessings be with us, Father. And I pray if anyone here or listening to this message does not have the certainty of salvation, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be convicting him or her, him or her of their sins. But I also pray, Father, that they would understand that Jesus Christ died for them at Calvary's cross. And may they confess Christ as Savior, repenting of their sins. Bless us now, we pray, in Jesus' name.